0: What happens if all the doomsday's forecast for the future are wrong and the future is bright with a clean environment? This is Green Sense. I'm Robert Colangelo, where we bring you eco-innovations that are changing your world. Michael Rogers, Practical Futurist, has been tracking innovations that will change the future for decades. He's a futurist, speaker, author, journalist and the New York Times, Future in Residence. And Michael is coming back to join us on Green Sense now. Welcome, Michael Rogers.
1: Thank you. It's always a pleasure.
0: Well, thank you so much for sending me an autographed copy of your new book, Email from the Future, Notes from 2084. Last time you were on the show, we talked a little bit about it, and uh, I thought uh, uh, your interpretations of the future, to borrow from the old band, Timbuk3, looks so bright, I got to wear shades. (laughs) (laughs) So that was quite refreshing. It's uh, it's the nature
1: of the utopian novel, um, which is a form that you know has been around since 1516, and has been written in various ways. But it's always got characters. But one of the characters is always a society, a society either on a magical hidden island that uh, some sailor just discovered, which worked for the first few centuries until we pretty much decided we knew where everything was and there weren't any secret utopias hiding behind Antarctica. And so we we began to have time travel utopias. And interestingly enough, the utopian notion, the, the, the novel itself form kind of lost in the 20th and 21st centuries to the dystopian novel. And there's lots of stories about how things can possibly go wrong, (laughs) Uh, but I thought I would try something different, which is the utopian novel. And, you know, (laughs) Oscar Wilde, who had a quote about everything, once said, a map of the world without a utopia on it is not worth a second glance. So there's a point to having utopias, I think, to live towards. And it's fun to think about them.
0: Well, I think you did a fantastic job. It was a fun read, and it's really nice not to read about a dystopian future. So I, I enjoyed that. But I also liked your commentary looking back you know, from the future in 2084 uh, on what current times were. And that's where I think you had a lot of fun in mm-hmm. that you were able to uh, talk about their history, which is our present. And I thought you had some piercing, uh, you know, very sharp observations of the what times are like now. So, this is a fictional book. You start with an email from 2020. Was this a real email?
1: <laughs> I thought about trying to make it uh, a real email. It sounded no, like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, And in fact, some friends of mine suggested that I start the whole thing as if it really happened. I really did get an email from 2084 uh, and let that build up to a big Internet frenzy and then reveal the book. But I'm not positive that would have worked so well. So, yes, my my. Notion is that in the future, and there is a little tiny bit of evidence to suggest this, we may begin to learn to do time shifting on a quantum level. So the notion basically is you know, we can't uh, time shift anything larger than an electron, but we can do that. And so suddenly the hero of the book finds himself uh, uh, receiving this email from a writer in 2084. Very mysterious though.
0: Well, this this book looks back from the year 2084 through a series of essays and conversations, or maybe I'd say life lessons between a grandfather and a grandson. And you weave many current issues in the book that made it read like nonfiction. COVID, uh, mm-hmm. you didn't call it the great resignation, but, but you referred to it. Crime, mm-hmm. greed, the internet, automation, virtual love. So let's dig into a few. The first, uh, you talk about uh, celebrating the 350th day. Why not 365 days? What's the significance of 350?
1: (laughs) 350 day is one of the great holidays in uh, 2084. It's been around since I think the 40s, 2040 or so. And it is the day, day on which for an entire year, the average level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere stayed at 30 at 350 parts per million. So that's That's the
0: significant. Okay.
1: It's 350 day. And that was the day when the generation Z, the warriors in the so-called war on the warming, as it was called, knew that they, they were winning. They'd stabilized the, and started to, decrease the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere.
0: Well, another uh, chapter, or uh, if I could call that that, was on greed, you know, one Mm -hmm. of the seven deadly sins. And you have a quote there that greed is viewed as a mental condition. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Talk about that. (laughs) Well, it turns out
1: that um, there is, uh, research in genomics moves very, very quickly. And by 2040 or so, uh, there are increasing indications that it's a cluster of genes that cause this uh, thing that we see called greed. And this becomes very controversial, and a lot of research is done on it. Uh, ultimately, everyone, of course, in 2040 can do their own gene scans. So they do their own gene scans, and many discover that they have this same cluster of genes. And in fact, they are a little greedy when they come to think of it. So therapy ensues for millions. And uh, it turns out then that we look at greed as a treatable disease. And one of the ways to get away from, what, one of the things that causes greed to be initiated in people is the a perceived scarcity, which turns out uh, is something that's often manufactured by governments or by companies and corporations to make people work harder. And by 2040, 2050, in the developed world, at least, there is not scarcity. So it turns out that the uh, occurrence of greed drops substantially. And uh, you can even train young kids if they happen to have the gene cluster for greed. Uh, Simple VR training sort of gets them on a different path. So... um, We look at greed in 2084 the way, for example, we looked at epilepsy 100 years ago, which was a sign of madness back then.
0: Now we know it's simply a disease, and so is greed. And it cured a lot of social ills uh, Mm -hmm. by getting rid of that greed. So let's talk about the internet. Uh, You talk about the evolution of the internet. I'm going to read a couple of sentences here. The internet accelerated it all, initially the bad parts. The problem we know now was not the network itself. Ultimately, the network would save our species. The problem was the business model. (laughs) Elaborate.
1: (laughs) Well, basically, since I've been around since the beginning of the internet uh, and personal computing uh, when I was much younger, uh, there was this great optimism about what it would all bring. And it was sort of a hobbyist kind of thing you know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak all hung out at the Homebrew Computer Club and uh, you know, dreamed of every person having a computer and how liberating that would be. And it turned into a business, a real cutthroat business. And that sort of corporate push ultimately meant that everything on the internet essentially had a price. Your privacy had a price. Your information had a price. Everything was ultimately measured by clicks and price. And that is what drove us crazy and drove the internet crazy in the early years.
0: Now, is that fiction or reality?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's, uh, you know, sometimes when historians look back, things become clearer to them. And I think this is one of those things that we'll look back and say, bluntly put, the influence of capitalism on the building of what was, what is, the great intellectual commons of mankind, uh, is is what sort of bent and twisted it at the beginning. Uh, Major social networks that declined to. you know, uh, police the content or, you know, look at false news, uh, malinformation, as they call it in the future, uh, are, are doing it because it hurts shareholder profits to, uh, to you know, to cut back on those clicks. So, uh, so how did the
0: internet get righted in the future?
1: <clears throat> it was a movement gradually to uh, create, open source, a lot of open source software, co-op kinds of internet connections for uh, sociality, for business, so that there was not really a single corporate owner. The co-ops were basically member-run. Co-ops, it turns out, after the war on warming began and uh, people were really interested in decoupling from the corporate environment, it turned out that co-ops were a business model that suddenly looked really attractive to to millions of people.
0: Well, this was another uh, couple of sentences I really enjoyed. It's early century politics. So let me uh, read. Uh, When I was a kid, the United States elected a mentally ill man to be president. One of the strangest American political events of the century. This was a this was long before the digital voting amendment. Back then, the centuries-old electoral system was deeply flawed. Even when a candidate received the most votes, they might not actually win. <laughs> Tell us more, <laughs> actor <And>, fiction. <laughs> yes, and that
1: again is is
0: fact. You
1: know, we designed a system of voting because, uh, in a complicated way, the original founders of the the country were concerned that um, states would lose their power, that it would become too federal, so that's why states still have so much power over how their elections are run, Uh, and we're seeing them beginning to wield that power for political purposes these days. So essentially, it makes no sense, really, in the context of our our modern America to have that kind of strange electoral college. And in fact, what makes sense and what we ultimately end up with, uh, thanks to a constitutional amendment uh, out, I think, in the late 2030s, early 2040s, is one-to-one digital voting. uh, And that makes all the difference.
0: So you have a chapter on the world strike. I guess that that was supposed to resemble the great resignation. In, in a way, uh,
1: but it's also, I mean, we really have this generation, Generation Z growing up now and their younger siblings, which we're probably going to call Gen Alpha, that went out and you know were t- allowed to miss school in elementary school to go demonstrate in climate rallies. And if you look now at sort of who is running the climate rallies, it's Gen Z. And very often uh, women in Gen Z are the most powerful leaders. So the, the, the notion of having a strike has been around for a long time. It simply has not been organized on a truly national, international level. And that's what the world strike becomes.
0: Well, let's touch on one more and that's religion. Uh, If you choose to follow no religion, you'll be following in my footsteps. My parents were agnostic intellectuals. Growing up, I was curious about friends' religions, but nothing really stuck. At some point in your pod, you'll visit all the spiritual spaces in New Williamsburg. Tell us more about your thoughts on religion. I think religion undergoes
1: quite a shift uh, in the, the middle of this century, the 21st century, uh, partly because the, the fundamentalists, uh, the really extreme fundamentalists begin to control more and more of what people perceive as religion. So, and for younger, uh, even younger members of the congregations who have grown up in a world of science, uh, who are multiracial in much of their thinking and in the, the schools they attend, it it becomes harder and harder for religions to be extremely fundamental, and ultimately, uh, new religions arise uh, because uh, also out by well, once the, we need more tax dollars to support the war on the warming, some of the really successful new startup churches, the so-called mega churches that often have other kinds of side businesses, they are. Finally, taxed. And under the weight of being taxed and audits and so forth, a lot of sort of the magic of religion uh, washes away. New religions come up. I think spirituality will be strong throughout this decade, but I throughout this century rather. But I think it needs to come from a different place.
0: Interesting. Michael, anything else you'd like to talk about with the book?
1: Uh, you know, the one thing that I keep uh i talk a lot about in my speeches too is that i think we have some surprises coming up in the area of new materials uh and the you know material science new plastics uh new kinds of metal compounds and so forth sort of the unsexiest part of technology compared to building computers or doing genetic engineering but i think we we always tend to you know discount just how important new materials will be so that's something that i keep an eye on you know things like sheets of glass that are unbreakable and also conduct electricity i mean there are things like that in the lab right now or clear uh,
0: solar panels exactly <laughs> dual purpose right mm-hmm. yeah, so that's something we'll keep an eye on Michael, I uh, just wanted to thank you. I don't know if it was in homage to our vocation, uh, uh, but I did read about vertical farms being in the future. So tell me more about that. How did that get in there?
1: Oh, I'm convinced that vertical farms uh, in urban settings, and we're starting to see them here in Brooklyn, where I live, <laughs> uh, and you know, really beginning to provide produce for, for restaurants. It's, When you look out at the future and imagine that industrial farming is replaced by much higher precision farming. Uh, We use less land, uh, which I believe will be reforested and rewilded, but for close in uh, sources of food, vegetables, et cetera, vertical farms will make a lot of sense. Uh, And (laughs) in fact, I. Put a couple vertical farms uh, in New York City, because it turned out that back in the 20s, uh, they had built these gigantic incredible towers for the Wall Street princes and the Russian oligarchs. You know, they're incredibly high buildings. But it then it turned out that as the severe weather of climate change began to hit New York, uh, they were way too tall. So in the end, they ended up cutting these condominium buildings down by about half and turning them into very well-located vertical farms.
0: Well, I appreciate that. And I think you're spot on. Vertical farms allow you to grow a high density of crop year-round, pesticide-free, recirculating your water, and uh, you could do it year-round. So uh, hopefully that future is going to come true. And we're seeing lots of investment pour into this area. Um, last time you were on the show, uh, we were sort of in the middle of COVID, and uh, we talked about all the innovations that uh, may come out of the pandemic. You know, Now I watch uh, you know, TV, news, uh, social media, and we see terrible atrocities in the Ukraine, and you wonder, you know, are, why do we still have wars? So what innovations do you think are going to come out of the war on Ukraine? Anything positive?
1: I hope so. I mean it's it's such a terrible thing to see and it's something that we are seeing with an intimacy because of social media that uh, is unlike any war in the past, I think. Wars increasingly come into our living rooms, starting with Vietnam actually in television, but this is just so intimate and direct. I think it'll have a real effect on how the world thinks of war. Coming out of Ukraine, I think a couple things are are going to happen. This will make it much more important for countries to have strategic sources of energy and minerals. And the best strategic source of energy is on your own land with your own renewable resources. So I think that is you know because we Europe, in particular,ly is so hamstrung by their dependency on Russian gas. Uh, There's less that they can do. The second thing I'm really interested in is uh, the efficiency, the efficacy, I guess one would say, of sanctions, the notion of international sanctions in which people are sort of, countries are cast out of the financial system. I think that we're going to find that sanctions become a better and better and sharper and sharper tool because of the way the whole world financial network is evolving. It's becoming much more integrated. And many of the governments of the world have gotten together to uh, begin to uh, move against tax evasion. So that means they're looking at ways that money moves outside the normal system. Traditionally, when we have sanctions against another country, they generally, there's businessmen somewhere who figure out a way to get around the sanctions. But the future of sanctions, sanctions will be much less leaky than they are now. And I think in a more united world with a strong EU and strong United States, it's possible that sanctions will become a very, very strong weapon. And I hope that I hope that's the case.
0: I'd rather see sanctions be a deterrent than nuclear weapons. So uh, uh, let's hope you're right on that one. Um, Michael, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, appreciate you being on Green Sense. Any last closing remarks?
1: Well, I guess I should mention that... Um, The uh, email from the future is publishing on on Earth Day and is already available for pre-order on Amazon, audiobook, paperback at very reasonable prices. Because to be honest, what's most important to me is to get this image out into the world and hope it does some good.
0: Well, I really appreciate you being on the show, being able to tell your story and share some insights from email from the future, notes from 2084. It's a great read, lots of fun, and uh, it's nice to see a bright future. So thank, thank you me. for being on Greensense. As I
1: said, always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: That's practical futurist Michael Rogers. Learn more about him at michaelrogers.com. I'm Robert Colangelo. This is Sense. Visit greensensefarms.com to learn more about the show and subscribe to our podcast. Listen to the Greensense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 WBBM Chicago. A big thanks goes to producers Mike Sanders and Julia Shu, Dana Daywood for social media, and executive assistant Angela Surdy. The show is produced by Greensense Farms Holdings, Inc. All rights reserved.